Welcome to the Heart of the Father podcast. We're glad you're here and able to listen in. We're praying the Lord will speak to your heart through this message and that you be transformed more and more into the image of Christ. If you guys will open up your Bibles with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I have been doing a lot of pondering this week, meditating and seeking the Lord for what he is saying to our community. You know, we celebrated our 13th year anniversary a couple weeks ago, and so as a church, we finally hit the teenage years, so we're about to get rocking and rolling. Things are going to get really fun and exciting around here, and so I want to maybe help Uh, speak into the culture we want to build here at Heart of the Father, maybe cast a little vision of what we're doing here. So if you're new, maybe catch you up to speed. If you've been here for some time, then um, hopefully this will be at your core just a little bit. But let's pray. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us this morning. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you. We come under the teaching and the authority of your written word. We thank you that your word is the truth and we love the truth. God, I thank you that you are building in this community a people who love the truth, who celebrate the truth. His name is Jesus. He is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. So would you come, would you speak to us? Would you draw every heart to you that we might know you? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. First Thessalonians chapter 1. <clears throat> We're going to start at verse 2. Says, Paul says, we give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, <clears throat> remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love and patience of hope, in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. Verse 5, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance or deep conviction, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you, the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So in Acts chapter 17, we get a really brief description of Paul's time in Thessalonica. 
the population of Thessalonica was a little bit around the population of Lakeland. Maybe a little bit more, maybe a couple thousand more, but not, not a lot bigger than Lakeland. And Paul was there for a short time. Scholars say maybe three weeks, three Sundays. So no more than a couple of months he was there. And he spent time with them and, and through persecution and affliction, he had to depart the region. But what's absolutely incredible about this church is the words of Paul to them. Paul says something about this church in this letter that he does not say to any other New Testament church. He says something to them specifically that we have no other written scriptures of him saying it about another church. And what was that? Look at verse 7. So that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia. There was something about this church in Thessalonica where Paul didn't say, hey, a couple of you, one or two of you are great examples. He says, no, this whole church is an example of Christ, not just to their own city, but in Macedonia and Achaia. Macedonia and Achaia are regions within what we call modern-day Greece. The size of Greece is a little bit smaller than the size of Florida. And so you have this church in this region, and Paul says, hey, you guys are actually examples. I'm actually hearing about it. I was there for a short period of time. I'm on my travels and I'm catching word about you guys and your examples to other churches. So question, what stood out about this church in Thessalonica? A couple of things. If we were to read all of uh, 1 Thessalonians, a couple of things Paul commends them on. Um, number one is that they received the word of God in affliction with joy. It's in verse 6. There was affliction, there was persecution, it was difficult to receive the word, but they received it, not barely, they received it with joy in the Holy Spirit. Uh, the second thing, he says, you guys turned from idols to serve the living God. I'm hearing testimonies, you guys are turning away from idol worship, burning your idols, getting rid of them, and you're serving the true and living God. The next thing. They're looking for and waiting for the return of the Lord. He commends them. You guys are doing it. Now, they were a little confused on if the Lord had come and what about the dead and whatnot. But nonetheless, there was talks about the Lord's coming. He's returning. Live rightly. Live soberly. The next thing he points out in chapter 3, he says, Your faith and your love toward God is increasing. It's growing. It's flourishing. The second to last thing, he says, your love towards one another and to those around you, it's increasing. You guys are doing it well. You love the body of Christ well. Not your own body, but the surrounding body of Christ. And here's the last thing, and here's what I really want to um, expand upon this morning. Look at verse 8. 
Look at this example this church set. He says, for from you, the word of the Lord has sounded forth. What does that mean? What does that look like? Can you picture a church? If Paul wrote to Heart of the Father and said, hey, I'm, I'm in a different region. I'm not, I haven't been there in a long time. I've been there a couple weeks. And I'm hearing the word of the Lord sounding forth, not just from one person on the pulpit, but the whole body of Christ is sounding forth the word of the Lord. So, question, what does it mean for the word of the Lord to sound forth? Well, I knew you guys wouldn't believe me, so I found some New Testament commentaries. This is Tyndale in the Pillar New Testament commentary. Here's what they say about this phrase, the word of the Lord sounding forth. He says, Paul's words for from you is emphatic and his words sounded forth is picturesque. It might describe the clarion call of a trumpet or the roll of thunder. It emphasizes the resounding nature of the witness borne by the Thessalonian church. The verb sounded forth is in Greek perfect tense, which implies that the sounding out was continuing. It was no passing whim. Another scholar says, the term sounded forth appears only here in the New Testament. But in other literature, it can be used to describe a clap of thunder, the loud cry of a multitude, a rumor that runs everywhere, or every place that is near being filled with the sound of a loud trumpet. The proclamation from Thessalonica was set at a high volume and went out with great force over a large area. This passage speaks of a tremendous effort by the Thessalonian believers to carry the word of the Lord to all parts. So this was more than just words. This was spiritual power and authority being released because the church had a voice. The church had a message to preach and to proclaim. What was it? The word of the Lord. Well, question what is the word of the Lord? Was it just a prophetic word? Was it just a, I got something cool to say. I'm going to predict the future. I'm going to prophesy to you. What was the word of the Lord they proclaimed? You got it, Omar. Look at verse 5. Paul says, for our gospel... This word of the Lord, this church was proclaiming was the gospel, the good news, the message of freedom. Come, be free from your sins. Repent. The Lord is coming. Good news. And every member knew it, proclaimed it, spoke it. It wasn't just a couple of few. And he says in verse 5, this gospel they proclaimed, it just wasn't in word, but there was an actual demonstration of it. Think with me here. It just wasn't Jesus loves you, he cares about you, and 
Bless you. Have a good day. It was that and a little bit more. There was power. There was the Holy Spirit. There was deep conviction. Are you starting to get a picture of what a New Testament church maybe should look like? The title of my message, if you want to write it down, Contending for a New Testament Church Expression. We are going after New Testament Christianity, where the church is fully alive, fully living, fully active. So, question, what did this actually look like? I have some multiple choice for us here, and I'm going to, it's a little pop quiz for you, but I'm going to give you the answer so we all can pass together. What did this church actually look like? Multiple choice here. A, the church at Thessalonica, they consistently brought in fivefold ministry ministers and other leaders to come speak the word of the Lord to them and to others. Do you think they only did that? Okay. I would say no, because Paul barely spent any time there. So much so, he says at the end uh, end of verse 8, your faith has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. Wait, Paul, we, we, we need you, man. We need the apostle to come save us, rescue us, do the work for us, Lord. Apostle Paul, preach it, teach it. You come on, we come back. Paul's like, no, no, you guys are good. I mean, I'll, I'll, I miss you. I love you. I want to come and serve and be a blessing. But beloved, you guys are sounding forth the word of the Lord that I don't even need to come. In other words, like you don't need me. You're not so dependent on me. You are actually doing it yourself. The church is doing it herself. Okay, let her be. They gathered together only the highly gifted, the zealous, the extroverts. Right? I'm an introvert. I don't I don't talk to strangers. So they got the extroverts together, right? And then they said, "Hey, you guys, you go out and do this work." Well, no, that's not it either because Paul says the word of the Lord is sounding forth from all, like all of you. You're all doing this work. So letter B is not it. Letter C, okay. Maybe they spent time just praying that God would move out there. Do you think that's all they did? We're just going to pray. We're going to stay in here. It's nice and safe and cozy and warm. I love you all. Let's pray for God to move out there. And that's all they did. Okay. No. Right? What's interesting, Jesus, he prays in John 17, he says, Father, as you've sent me into the world, I send them. Uh Uh-oh. Okay, so letter C, what about letter D? Here's letter D. I think we might all agree upon this. Every member from the least to the greatest yielded to the leading of the Holy Spirit And committed themselves and took personal responsibility to do the work of the ministry in their sphere of influence. 
I want to read it again because if, if you don't agree, that's okay. Every member from the least to the greatest yielded to the leading of the Holy Spirit and committed themselves and took personal responsibility to do the work of the ministry in their sphere of influence. Isn't that exciting? Like when you go to work, it's just, you're not just taking up time or filling a position. You know, do you know you're there to do the work of the ministry? Do you know the work of the ministry is just not on a Sunday morning for a couple of hours? Do you know the work of the ministry can be done at any time, any day, anywhere? But for some reason in our minds, this is only the only work of the ministry right here. If that is our mindset, this is the only work of the ministry then no one will ever say about heart of the Father, the word of the Lord sounding forth. They'll never say it. Well, they'll say, hey, that one preacher, you know, that preacher Dave and preacher Barry, they sound forth the word. They do it. I mean, that's cool and everything. Like, I appreciate Dave and Barry preaching. I love it. But what would it look like for a whole church where every member is participating, every member is active, every member is contributing, every member is giving themselves to being training, being trained and equipped, every member is ready to share the gospel, every member is ready to pray, every member is ready to be used by God to prophesy. Every member is willing to have someone over to their house. Every member actually being alive in Christ. Are we ready for that? Or have we thought about that? That you being alive in Christ looks a lot different than maybe what you're experiencing now. That you came to church this morning, praise God, awesome. But do you know there's more work to be done than that? Yes. This, this is the easy part. I mean, for some of you, the workplaces you go into, it's, it's borderline hell. This is easy. That's the hard part. That's the part we need grace upon grace upon grace from the Lord. So, how did, how did Paul help this church in Thessalonica? How did he help them to become examples? His time was limited. What did he do? What did he say? What did his ministry look like? I have a little diagram here for us. I want them to go ahead and put it up there. This is really simplified, maybe overly simplified, of the ministry of Paul in Thessalonica and elsewhere as well. So, we're going to read a passage here in verse 5 again. But the church in Thessalonica, they simply received the gospel. They were transformed by the gospel. 
Then they demonstrated the gospel. Right? They didn't get a chance to go to school. They didn't get a chance to take all of these classes and like, no. They received the gospel. They were transformed by it. And then they demonstrated it. Look with me at 1 Thessalonians chapter, or chapter 1, verse 5 again. For Paul says, he says, For our gospel did not come to you in word only. Right? He's implying you guys have received the gospel. But also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in deep conviction or assurance. You know what that speaks to? That speaks to demonstration. Paul said the gospel came and it was demonstrated among you. There was power. There was the person of the Holy Spirit. Maybe a spiritual gift. And then there was deep conviction. Are you tracking with me? So there's a demonstration of the gospel. Well, what about the transformed life? Let's read the rest of this verse. He says, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. What is he saying? He's saying, we came to you, we not only demonstrated the gospel to you, but you actually saw the transformation in my personal life. A lot of times we try to demonstrate the gospel, yet we have not experienced personal transformation from the gospel. In other words, you preach a message, but you don't maybe live the message. So this morning, I want to focus on what does it mean to be transformed by the gospel? What does your life actually look like? Because we're facing an uphill battle. Most of the world, there's studies that show this. When they look at the church, they see the church as hypocrites. Meaning you say one thing and you live absolutely another way. We need to be touched, changed, renewed by the power of the gospel. So Paul says, I'm with you. You saw the, the demonstration of the gospel and you saw my life. Go over to chapter two. What does it look like for these believers to see the life of Paul? What was his transformation? Look at verse seven, chapter two, second Thessalonians. He says, but we were gentle among you just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you, listen to this, to impart to you not only the gospel, but what? But our own lives. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil for laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, we preach to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses in God also how devoutly, justly, and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. As you know how we exhorted and comforted charged every one of you as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and his own glory. 
Paul just didn't talk the talk. He actually... The reason there was spiritual power and authority backing up his message was because he was convinced of it. He was transformed by this very message. So, for example, through the gospel, I have received the love of God, right? Amen. It's, this love has transformed me. Therefore, I demonstrate it. Meaning I actually show you love. I actually care for you. Okay, through the gospel, I have received the forgiveness of sins. I've been transformed by it. I'm a forgiven person. It's changed me. I'm indebted to God. Therefore, I'm able to what? Demonstrate it. Mercy. Through the gospel, I've received mercy. I've received power. Whatever example, whatever word you want to put in there, you've received it through the gospel. It should have transformed you the way you think, the way your heart moves. You've been transformed by it. Now you can actually go and demonstrate it. And that's what the church in Thessalonica, that's what they were doing. So it begs the question, if we, it begs the question, have we really been transformed by this gospel? We don't love people. We show no mercy. There's no power. Holy Spirit's not moving through our lives. I wonder, well, have, we, have you received the gospel? Let's start there. We can say, yes, we received it. Okay, have you allowed this gospel to work in you and transform you? This is the answer, church. The church, what we need, we need the gospel. We need to receive it. We need to be transformed by it. And then maybe we might go out and demonstrate it. Think about it. This church in Thessalonica, Paul was there maybe three Sundays. I mean, I get it. Maybe if he was there three years, then we could say, well, yeah, that church, Thessalonica, they had Paul for three years. Here in Lakeland, we're stuck with Brandon, Dave, and Barry. So, you know, it's, it's a good reason why they got transformed. No, he was barely there. What do you think they did? What was their secret sauce? Like what? What was the secret? Jesus. Say it a little louder for me in the back. Jesus. That's the answer. They received the Lord. He transformed them. And then they demonstrated their transformation in Christ. Very, very simple. For me, like, this washes over me like, okay, Brandon, I don't have to do this a hundred things on my to-do list, on this checklist, and then I might, God might use me. I'm like, no, no. Like, receive. Receive the gospel, the good news. You've been forgiven. There's the love of God. 
There's grace. There's divine empowerment. There's strength. There's mercy. Everything we need for life and godliness, we simply received it. It changes us in here. And then when we go out there, we just let it leak out. That's it. Here's what brother named Michael Green wrote a book on evangelism in the early church. And this is amazing what he had to say about this. He said, one of the most striking features of evangelism in the early days was the people who engaged in it. Communicating the faith was not regarded as the work of the very zealous or of the officially designated evangelist. Evangelism was the prerogative and the duty of every church member. We have seen apostles and wandering prophets, nobles, intellectuals, and fishermen all taking part enthusiastically in this primary task committed by Christ to his church. The ordinary people of the church saw it as their job. Christianity was supremely a lay movement spread by informal missionaries. The clergy of the church saw it as their responsibility too. Bishops, presbyters, doctors, philosophers, they all saw together the, prerog- the, prerog- the propagation of the gospel as their prime concern. The spontaneous outreach of the total Christian community gave immense momentum to the movement from the very outset. One more paragraph. What is more, this infectious enthusiasm on part of such a diverse people of different ages, backgrounds, sex, and cultures was backed up by the quality of their lives, their love, joy, their changed habits, and progressively transformed character gave weight to what they had to say. Their community life, though far from perfect, was nevertheless sufficiently different and impressive to attract notice, to incite curiosity, and to inspire discipleship in an age that was as pleasure conscious, as materialistic, and as devoid of serious purpose as our own. Paganism saw in early Christianity a quality of living which could not be found elsewhere. Amazing, beautiful. It wasn't that they had the message perfectly communicated every single time. It, the pressure wasn't that. It was really, what's your life look like? You're preaching this message of come and be transformed by Jesus, but have you been transformed? So the world is peering into the church and seeing like, what are you guys actually about? And for some reason, when they saw the church in Thessalonica, they were like, oh, you guys are the real deal. You guys turned away from your idols. Now you're serving this true and living God. His name's Yahweh. So to put it clearly, one of the first and primary signs of the gospel working in your life, it's not miracles, signs, and wonders. It's character transformation. It's inward transformation. 
For some reason, in the charismatic church, we look at miracles, signs, and wonders as, a, as the primary, as the number one sign that, oh, that's, that person loves Jesus. Can I tell you, I would be very, very careful in doing that. Why? Well, in 2 Thessalonians, Paul says, hey, the lawless one is coming. He's coming by the working of Satan, and he's coming with all power, signs, and lying wonders. Hello. And what's Jesus say? Hey, false prophets are going to come. They're going to be wolves in sheep's clothing, but inwardly, inwardly, they haven't been transformed. They're going to be ravenous wolves. They're going to cast out demons. They're going to prophesy. They're going to do all these things in the name of Jesus. And what does Jesus say to them? Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. So, Somebody operating in miracle signs and wonders is not the first and primary sign that they're a gospel-believing Christian. There is a place for that, but it's not first. It's not primary. All the emphasis, are we can't put all the marbles in that basket. We can't do that. And that's why Paul's ministry was so effective. Yes, he operated in miracle signs and wonders, but guess what? He had character and a lifestyle behind it, behind closed doors, that when they saw this man, okay, this man is the real deal. Loving, he's gentle, he's forgiving, he's merciful, there's grace, there's peace in his life. Like this, this stuff shouldn't be awkward for us. This should be so normal in the church. Like, hey, anyone come over to my house. Ask my kids how I treat them. It'll be the same message. My dad loves me. My dad cares for me. He's forgiving. He disciplines me, but he loves me. I mean, I wonder if we really saw into some of each other's lives. What would we see? And based off what we see, would it point to, oh, they've received the gospel. They've been transformed by it. Beloved, that should not be so in the church. The world should have, they should never be able to say we're hypocrites. They should never be able to say, you guys have some anointing, but your character is so out of whack. It should be hard for them to point out anything that's ungodly in our life. And even if they do, guess what? We confess it. Yes, I need forgiveness. I need mercy. I repent. So, one of the primary signs of the gospel working in you, that it's really living in you, is that you have been transformed in your character and in your conduct. The way you act is not how you used to. For example, 1 Corinthians 6, let me read three passages to you. Paul says, 
This is 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, if you're taking notes. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Don't be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or anyone practicing homosexuality. No thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. And some of you used to be like this. You used to do that. But here's the good news. You've been washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Colossians 3, verse 3. For you have died. Your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Therefore, put to death what belongs to your worldly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the, the God's wrath comes on the disobedient. And you once walked in these things when you were living in them, but now you must put away all these things. And then Titus 2, verse 11, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust, and that you should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. You know what those three passages communicate? is that you've been transformed by the gospel. That's it. You used to be one way. Now in Christ, you live another way. That's what they saw in the church in Thessalonica. They used to worship their idols. They used to be selfish. They used to be vengeful. They used to be all of these things that the world looks like, but in Christ, they've been transformed. So let's look at one example of them being transformed. So go with me to chapter four, verse nine. But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you. Wait, Paul. What? Is, are you, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. What if we just like canceled all teaching about loving one another? Like just no more teaching on that. Because... We all gave ourselves to be taught by God. The same way God loves you, the gospel, he loved you through the gospel. You've been transformed by it. Now you do what? You demonstrate it. And Paul's like, you guys do that. You yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed, you do so toward all the brethren who are, notice he doesn't say in Thessalonica, who are in all Macedonia, the greater region. 
He's like, you just don't love your own little group. You love all the groups, the whole body of Christ. If any church names the name of Jesus, you love them. It's not like come to my church, be stuck at my church, my church. No, no. You love Jesus? Okay, you're invited here, but if God calls you elsewhere, go. we love you. God has taught us this. We do this. And then verse 11, this, this blows my mind that Paul would have the audacity to write this. Some of y'all laughing because you're like, oh, you know. What the Holy Spirit would inspire this man to say verse 11. Just look at it. I may not even need to read it. Come on, just if you got your Bible or look at the screen, look at it. Paul, wait a second, brother. You are telling this church in Thessalonica, whom the word of the Lord is sounding forth, everyone knows that God is in that place. He's moving. The gospel is being demonstrated. Paul, why would you quench the spirit? <laughs> Paul, why would you tell them don't do, to lead a quiet life? To mind your own business. To work with your own hands as we lightly suggested to you. No. Paul says, I demonstrated the gospel to you, but I want to make sure you have been transformed by it. Your life should be in order. This idea that we're going to be a church that sounds forth the word of the Lord, yet our lives are in chaos, we're in this hamster wheel, we're always crazy, we're always in swirls 24-7, we're just here, we're over there. Do you know there's a place in God where you can preach and sound forth and communicate the gospel faithfully and you can be at peace in your home. Your life can be in order. Like you're not going crazy because everything's just always crazy. No. Paul's saying the anointing on your life should match the character that's in your life. That you aspire to lead a quiet life to mind your own business. Help us, Lord. To mind your own business. In other words, to keep your mind on your own business. You know, you know what? I found myself doing this a couple weeks ago. And I, I tell you, I got into this like swirl. I got so irritated. My mind was on other people's business and it messed me up. I felt like I wasn't doing enough. I felt like my life just wasn't good. I must be missing something. I'm looking on social media. Man, it's amazing what they're, man, I, I'm just horrible. I just, man, I, something's wrong with me. And you know what I had to do? 
I had to get my mind off of their business and onto my business. Is that not what Jesus did? Whose business was he about? Oh, okay. He was about the father's business. He was not about everyone else's business. If you find your life in chaos and out of order, I, I, I'm, there's, a, there's a really, really high chance that your mind is on everyone else's business. Comparison, jealousy, envy, strife, division, gossip, slander, angry. I mean, you know, your mind is on their business. Stop it. You don't have to do that. Lead a quiet life, mind your own business, and work with your own hands. Do we know what that means? Or do I need to... you're able to, you should get a job. Man, that was the best part of the message. What's going on? I noticed I said, if you're able to, because some of you are not able to, that's okay. There's no condemnation. We're not bashing you. We actually have a benevolence ministry. We would love to help you if you're unable to work. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's a process for that. Come talk to us. Cliff, Joe Goss, those guys work together to do it. Go talk to them. But if you are able to work you should get a job. And can I just point out to you, uh, I won't even use myself as an example. I'll use someone else as an example. We'll use Paul. Did he not say, hey, I preach the gospel to you guys? But also, remember our labor and toil for laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. In other words, he, he worked. This idea of that you have to be in ministry and you can't work. Like, what, what is that about? You have to be in ministry. You can't work. If that is your mindset, then I would say this. You are forsaking your ministry because what if your ministry is at your workplace? Like, remember, remember, this is not the fullness of ministry. This is just a little piece of it. I spend uh, 40 minutes, 50 minutes up here on a Sunday. Is that the fullness of my, no. It's 50 minutes of it, that's it. And look, verse 12. So when you do that, when you guys, when your life matches the message, <clears throat> He says that you may walk properly toward those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. In other words, your life will preach to others. Yes, we need to use our lips and we must communicate verbally the gospel. But I'm telling you, there's a place where people see your good works and they what? Glorify our father in heaven. It is both and, it's not either or. 
For some of us, we do a lot of communicating, but our lives don't show it. And some of us, our lives don't show it, and there's communicating. Beloved, we need both and. If uh, Carissa, you want to come on, you and the team come up. As we contend for a New Testament church expression here at Hadafim, we must give ourselves to being transformed by the gospel. So how do we do that? We can't make and force God to move. We can't force him to change us and make him do it right now in a moment. But no, what we can do is that we can believe, we can have faith that he will and that he is doing it. We must ask God, we must have faith that he will transform us and change us. I was meeting with a brother one time and he was battling a certain sin in his life and he had abstained from it for a handful of months. And we're talking and I asked him, I said, do you, do you feel free? You feel like you've been set free. And it kind of puzzled him because he knew that he didn't really feel free, but in the gospel, you are free. And he was kind of like, well, I don't feel it, but, you know, the word says, whom the son sets free is free indeed, but I don't feel it. And so it came down to, so what, what do you want to believe? Whom do you want to believe? I remember when I, several years after, or a handful of years after I got saved, I thought the, the goal of Christianity was to live the best life you could live. To just try hard, do good. But I found myself stuck in sin, not living right for the Lord. And you know what changed me? One night, it was one night the guys had asked me to come out and go drink and go partying with them. But leading up to that moment, weeks, months before that, there were some teachings on Romans 6. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How can you who die to sin live in it any longer? And I'm at that night and my, my friends are talking to me and I, it hit me, it, it reali- I realized like the spirit of wisdom and revelation touched me and I said, like, I'm free. I can say no to sin. I didn't have the good, the feelings, but the truth is God had set me free. I recently, I read a, uh, the autobiography and there's a, it's, a, it's a powerful parallel to Christianity. I read the autobiography of Booker T. Washington. And he describes the scene when the Emancipation Proclamation was officially written, signed, and passed. 
And he was a teenager at the time, so he could comprehend what's going on. But his slave owner called him into the house, him and his mom. And they come into the house and this officer comes in and they read the Emancipation Proclamation. And after they read it, he and his mom were just kind of like, we're free? Like, like we're, that's it. They were set free. And so he goes on to say the next several weeks, what the former slaves would do is that the first thing they did, there's two things. Number one, he says that the former slaves changed their name. Because they no longer wanted to be identified under their slave name. Are you tracking with me? You used to be a sinner, a drunkard, an idolater. You used to practice idolatry, but you've been changed and God has given you a new name. You're a son. You're a daughter. You've been redeemed. You've been washed. And he said the second thing was is that they would go out and they would test and try out their new freedoms to like make sure, like, is this real? Like, so simple things like they had to walk on a certain side of the street. Well, they started walking on the other side. And guess what? They're free. They're free. And it took him a minute to really believe this, to catch on to this. But here's a part of the story that it, it, it troubles me. He goes on to say, after some weeks of some former slaves being set free, some of them, it says they actually went back to their former owner. And they decided to stay because they didn't know how to be free. They didn't know what to do. And some of that had to do with never learning, no money. But isn't that what we do sometimes? God sets us free and sometimes it's more comfortable, it's more familiar to go back into our former way of life rather than being set free and learning how to be free and work your spiritual muscles. We hope this message has been a blessing to you. If you'd like to join us on a Sunday morning or other weekly gathering, know that you're more than welcome. And if you'd like other resources on or about this ministry, or for any deeper questions you may have, be sure to visit our website at hotfmlakeland.com.